Well, our reading this morning is from Genesis 3. Um, in your bulletin, it starts at verse 14, but I'm going to start back in verse 8. Uh, so you'll listen along if you're just looking at the bulletin. If you have a Bible in front of you, you can back up to verse 8. And they, that's Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. For the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we... Um, we always learn more about who we are by going to God's Word. So let's pray that He would teach us this morning. Father, we praise You that You speak through Your Word by Your Spirit to us. Work in our hearts this morning, we pray. Show us more about who we are, and most of all, show us how good and loving and gracious You are. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you may remember the, uh, the scene in The Princess Bride where they carry Wesley's body to Miracle Max. Remember the Billy Crystal character? And Miracle Max tells them, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. And the comedy, of course, is that they're about to drive a truck through, you know, uh, this hole in the plot, right? <laughs> is that... Wesley's dead and they need to bring him back. And 
Uh, that's part of the joke. And, the, and you know, it kind of works because it suggests what we know is not true, that there are degrees of being dead. Uh, death is the result of sin. The Bible's pretty clear about this over and over and over again, and it's no, cl- no place clearer than right here in Genesis 2 and 3, because remember, they were told if, the, if they listened to God's Word, they would have life. It would be confirmed in life everlasting. But if they didn't, they would die. And last week, as we've been thinking about this book of Genesis, we, we thought about that moment where they sinned, and we thought about temptation And now we see the fallout, what death looks like. Death, of course, is only meaningful in the context of life. Death doesn't have an existence of its own. It is parasitic on God's good creation. It is a thief, as it were, that we've let in the gate. What death is in all of its fullness is not degrees, but it is multifaceted, and it It touches on every aspect of our life. What God, well, what the wages, as Paul says, of our sin is, is death. And death has all of these facets. Though Paul is quick to say, right, while the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So we're going to think first this morning about the wages of sin. We'll spend most of the, talk about several different aspects of that. We'll spend most of it on that. But we will also think about the free gift of God. So let's think about the wages and start with the first wage. The first thing that sin gets us, and that is alienation from God. You remember we were saying uh, last week that that actually is the heart of what sin is, is that we turn away from God and towards other things. It is, uh, it's the very heart of what sin is. The other aspects of what we do that are sinful all are rooted in our denial of the who God is, our desire to turn away from Him. And so the result is that we are alienated from Him. We are cut off from Him. And you already see this. Adam and Eve already know this intuitively in verses 8 and 9 because God shows up and what do they do? They hide. They don't want to look him face to face. They don't want to see God. And, of course, as you get to the end of the passage, we start to see this, right? Adam, who, in verse 19, Adam, who had been made out of the dust, will return to it. And then, to cap it all off, in verses 22... And following, God kicks them out of the Garden of Eden, the place where they could meet God face to face. He drives them out. In fact, there's an interesting play that's been going on in all of this uh, about not the knowledge of good and evil. We have said, on the one hand, they actually need the knowledge of good and evil, and the question is how they will learn it. Will they learn it by listening to God or by turning away from Him, listening to the lies of, of Satan? by thinking that they are the arbiters of what is real, what is true, what is good. 
And of course, they chose the latter, and so there's an irony here, a bitter irony, when God says that they've become like us, knowing good and evil. Because God was never trying to withhold the knowledge. He was trying to teach them in His ways. But now they've learned a different way that has cut them off from Him, and so they have to be sent out of the garden, cut off from the tree of life, living east of Eden. It's important then to remember that this is the really, really the heart of what death is in the Bible. This is, the, this is, in fact, the defining feature of death. It, it is a physical reality, of course. But the most fearful thing about judgment, the thing that is death itself, is to be cut off from the one who is light and life and love. You might say... <laughs> It's described elsewhere, of course, in the Bible as hell, right? That that is what death is, is to be cut off from his presence because that is where you would want to be. And that is why, and we were saying this some last week, that when we, are, when we cut ourselves off from God and when we experience that alienation from him, then we run after everything that we can to figure out how to find approval, how to find comfort, how to find control in this life. But this is so helpful to understand. It's helpful to understand if you're a Christian this morning, and it's helpful to understand if you're not a Christian, that your biggest problem is not your bad habits or behaviors. It really isn't. The biggest problem is that you are cut off from God. Left to your own devices, you wander away from Him. And all of those bad behaviors and bad habits are just branches off of that tree. The older theologians would sometimes use the, the metaphor of being sin sick to describe humanity, which is to say, and it's a helpful metaphor because it teaches us to distinguish that all of the various individual sins in our lives are but the symptoms of the underlying illness. The underlying illness is that we are cut off from God. And all those other things are just the symptoms of it. Are they destructive? Yes. Like plenty of other symptoms of diseases, right? There are problems in and of themselves, but you'll never get to the root until you figure out what the underlying condition is. And it is unequivocally being cut off from God. That is the first problem. And this is something we need to learn because it's something we've forgotten. Uh, there's a guy named Cheslav Milos who was, um, he survived the German occupation of Poland only to then fall under uh, the, the Soviet rule in Poland. Uh, defected and found his way to America, but then also found himself a critic, not only of communism, but of capitalism as well. And he plays off the idea of the opiate of the masses, that famous Marxist line. And he says this, which is true of both systems, because it's true of the modern condition. A true opium of the people is a belief in the nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that our betrayals, greed, cowardice, murders are not going to be judged, but all religions recognize that our deeds are imperishable. 
This is the great lie of our age. That our deeds don't really have consequences. Or that those consequences are merely social. However significant those consequences might be. There is something more profound at work. A death, an alienation at work below the surface. It's helpful to remember then what uh, the great theologian Anselm said in his, his work, his medieval work, Why Did God Become Man? And he has, uh, it's, a, it's written as a dialogue. And Anselm says to, uh, to another guy named Bozo, you have, who's trying to argue about, well, is sin that serious? And he says, you have yet to consider the great weight of sin. All of these different ways are ways of talking about the seriousness of being cut off from God and that core root. So listen, if you want to know what death is, it is being cut off from the very one who is life. That is death. But there are other aspects of it as well. And we see them getting played out throughout this passage. Uh, the, a subsequent issue is our own shame. We're alienated from God, but then we become ashamed of ourselves. This is obvious in verses 10 and 11. They're hiding because they're naked. Now, presumably, Adam and Eve have been naked the whole time. In fact, it tells us that in chapter 2. They don't see a problem with it. But now they're no longer (laughs) naked, they're naked. You know the difference? You know the difference here? Uh, Despite all the conventions of a, of a southern accent, there's a particular way to pronounce naked. And, and, and the idea of shame, of course, is bound up in it, right? Because it's as if you're trying to get through the word as quickly as possible. So we don't have to talk about it any further, right? They are no longer naked, they're naked. They're trying to get around it. They're ashamed of who they are. And you know, this is the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is one thing, it's, a, it's an important thing to think about, right? But you are guilty, you feel guilty when you feel guilty for a a thing that you've done, a particular action. Shame is when you feel terrible about who you are. You see the difference? One is about a particular action, a particular moment. The other is about your very core of who you are. And this is the deal. They're ashamed of who they are. That is what the human condition is like. When we are cut off from the one who gives us approval, who gives us comfort, who helps us, who who teaches us that he has everything under control, when we are left to our own devices, we are exposed. Because we can't control the world around us. We can't find comfort that actually fulfills us. We are looking for approval everywhere. And it's a withholding world, isn't it? So we're ashamed. Look, that experience can be personal. It can also be social. There are, there are societies in the world, right, that are more shame-oriented, right, where you may or may not feel it personally, but, but uh, socially you're treated with shame. And actually, we talk about Western culture being more of a guilt culture rather than a shame culture, 
But the reality is with new media, we are just as much as a shame culture. It looks a little different. It's maybe less codified, right? But isn't this what cancel culture is? It's a way of shaming. And look, there's a kind of leftist version of cancel culture. There's a, there's a version of cancel culture on the right. It's a, either way, you slice it, right? We, we love to shame people. And the more public somebody is, the more we like to do it. And there's something, I think, that's really profound about that then, because this is the deal. We are most ashamed of the things that we hide, because shame thrives in the dark. It it thrives in secrecy. It thrives in what is left unsaid. In uh, in some mental health circles, they'll say you're... um, uh, you're only as sick as your secrets. Now, I'm not sure that's entirely true. But there's something to it, isn't there? That the, the deal is that we, we want to hide the things that we think we should be ashamed of. But the more we hide them, the more we feel trapped by them. The more that we get stuck in the cycle of telling ourselves that we are then worthless So what do you go back to but the same things over and over and over again? See, shame is really at the heart of the human condition. And some of us don't think we are full of shame. Some of us are a little shameless. Uh, But while it is true that we sometimes talk in arrogance That kind of arrogant talk displays the same kind of, you have to hype yourself up. You have to be your own hype man because you know that others will not see your worth. It is a tacit admission that we are insecure. And in some ways this is important to understand because first off it helps us understand one another. But it also understand, it helps us to understand what is one of those things that's at work in our relationship with God. We're often ashamed. And perhaps not without reason, because we are all sinners. But recognize that this is the fruit of that tree of alienation with God. It is part of of death at work in our lives. So there's shame, but there's also blame. You see, there's a kind of social breakdown here that goes on as well. It's, uh, you know, obviously there are two people, so it's going on between Adam and Eve, but they're passing the buck, right? You notice this in verses 12 and 13. Uh, We talked about it a little bit last week. Adam, God shows up and says, uh, Uh, Did you eat of this? And he says, uh, yeah, the woman that you gave me, that woman. Notice that. That's, it's so obvious, right? But he's blaming both Eve and God himself, right? That is so obvious what he's doing, but he's passing the buck. Eve, it gets to Eve, and Eve says, uh, the devil made me do it. They're passing the buck. They're blaming one another. And one of the things that becomes clear in the curse on Eve, verse uh, 
uh, verse 16, is this kind of social breakdown. Uh, this, is, this is important to understand. The curse on Eve actually applies in certain ways to everybody because it focuses on the social breakdown. The one who was called to be a resource and a, and a helper, and again, we talked about how that isn't diminutive, that is a word used of God. Somebody who has resources to bring to bear, how her relationships then get frustrated. Because in verse 16, she's told that pain will be multiplied in childbearing. Now, maybe that I'm, I have no doubt that that means the act of giving birth. But it also applies to the whole relationship of being a parent, which means it also applies to being a child. Right? Is that it will, it will not be all fun all the time. Indeed, some of you know the frustrations of dealing with, actually all of you know the frustrations of dealing with a parent who's difficult. And many of you know the frustrations of being a parent dealing with a child who's difficult. And sometimes monstrous sins even enter into that kind of relationship. And her marriage as well. This is a, this is a half of a verse has gotten a lot of attention over the years. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. It's a difficult, it's a very, it's, in Hebrew, it's a very short set of phrases, which means it can be translated a few different ways. But certainly, that first idea, that her desire will be contrary to her husband, means that the very idea that she's, that she's there to help, and that he is given leadership over their family, that she's going to try to subvert that. On the other hand, too, it means that he will dominate her. And so even while he's given leadership, of course, that's not supposed to be domineering. That's supposed to be, that is supposed to be loving, <laughs> caring. You can think about how Paul puts this later on, right? Sacrificial. And so what you see is, well, again, this is framed as the curse for the woman. It, is all, it implies the man just as much, right? Because this curse is focused on the social reality that sin brings into play. There's blame to go around, and we love to pass blame around, don't we? We do this all the time. If you have a brother and sister, this is where you learn how to pass blame. Right? Who can, who can you possibly blame? Uh, have you ever seen a uh, Have you ever seen a sports franchise that completely implodes? That has all this talent. They're supposed to be, you know, and all this finger pointing goes on. Right? Now these are kind of silly illustrations, but I'll give you an even sillier one. The Onion, you know, the online fake newspaper. Uh, they ran an article a few years ago. Disney World opens new ordeal kingdom for family meltdowns. This is, this, is the, this is how it's described. Situated between Epcot and Magic Kingdom, the 350-acre property reportedly incorporates many of the most aggravating elements of Disney's other parks and expands them into a creative and fully immersive world of irritation, which is said to include the longest lines in the entire resort, a convoluted layout which is only depicted in indecipherable cartoon maps that are not to scale, 
and 150% higher prices. According to Park Director Jacob Bartlett, Ordeal Kingdom's specialized combination of features will ensure a slowly building resentment among visiting families, eventually resulting in a dramatic public outburst followed by a silent walk back to the car. This is, it's funny, but it's dark, right? Because it's, well, if you've ever been to Disney, you've experienced some small form of that. We love to blame others personally. In our lives, we blame those in our family for various issues going on. We blame our friends, we blame our coworkers, especially if you have a boss, especially if you have employees. We love to blame all these other people. We also blame other groups. And this is where it can get really sinister, right? We blame other groups based on their education. We blame other groups based on perhaps their gender. We blame other groups based on their political affiliations. We blame other groups based on their racial ethnic identity. And the bitter fruit of that is obvious throughout society, isn't it? And I know what you're saying. There are segments of society that have deep problems. True. True. Blame is a different thing, though, isn't it? It is saying, well, everything would be fine if it weren't for those people. And the truth of the matter is, the Bible is telling us it wouldn't be. Things would look maybe a little different if one segment of society's problems were fixed. But that there will always be problems is the reality that we live with. And so we bring those problems to bear in the one of, this is one of the places where the reality of what the Bible is saying about death and its multiple, multiple facets in society is so obvious. Just think back over the last hundred years. The concentration camps and gulags and killing fields, right? The despots and the terrorists. Over and over and over again, we were playing this out. We blame some others out there. So little wonder that the Apostle John at the end of 1 John says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And the final facet of death is the physical disintegration itself. This is the final thing. This is, of course, what the curse on Adam focuses around. So, again, that applies to everyone as well, right? It's not just him as the man. It applies to everyone. But that is the focus of the curse that he receives, is that he was made from the ground, and the ground is now going to become a challenge to him. His work is going to become more difficult. The very creation itself that he is called to work is now a much more difficult place than it used to be. Indeed, this is so obvious at some level, right? Because just think about the works of human hands. If they are left alone for long, they fall into ruin. You ever see a house that's left alone for just a couple years? The plants and animals take over, right? It won't be long till that thing tumbles down. It's obvious, right? By the sweat of your face you shall eat 
but you will end up returning to the dust itself. So the physical death is the end of this thing. It is, uh, it is no mistake that the curse on Satan describes him as one who will go around eating dust. You see, that's not a description of, uh, of some kind of um, just-so story about how the snake ended up without legs. It is a description of what Satan will be like. He will go around trying to devour God's image, returning as it is to the dust. That is his curse, too, is to eat the dust. And, the, and so we see that this is really, well, you see, again, in our, all of our work, the frustration that comes with it, that it is a good thing, it is a good aspect of what God has called us to do, but it always ends up being frustrating at some level, doesn't it? Even if you find the perfect job, it won't be perfect for long. There will always be problems. Now, obviously, there are some jobs that are way worse than others. I'm not trying to play equivalency, but there always is hardship. There's always something that's difficult. There's always something that isn't right. Something that can't be sustained. Sometimes you feel like you're beating your head against the wall. And against death itself, of course, we are batting zero. Despite our pretensions, and you know, there's bizarre folks in the tech world that think we might be able to upload consciousness one day and all these other weird things, uh, we have not defeated death. And most of those sound like cheap sci-fi in the face of death. Some of you have seen death up close. And it is a terrible thing. It is the final fruit of being cut off from God. The last rotten apple on that terrible tree. But it is not the end. Because while the wages of sin are, is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And God doesn't leave them without hope. Now I'll tell you, next week is going to be all about verse 15. Uh, we're going to think about that at length, but it's worth seeing even this morning that in the middle when God is cursing the serpent, when God is cursing Satan, he says that I will put enmity between the, you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And it's fascinating that this promise of offspring that will defeat Satan that will crush his head, is the thing that Adam is thinking about when this all wraps up. Did you notice that? In verse 20, all this bad news, and there's a lot of bad news, all this bad news, when it all ends, verse 20, the man called his, wife, called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, on one hand, that's like a tr truism about the reality that they're the first man and woman. I going to be that. But he is thinking about her offspring. He is thinking back to verse 15 and the promise that is given. So the thing that Adam is hanging on to is that promise. That it will not all be lost. 
And in the meantime, God provides, right? He gives them animal skins, which means he, he killed an animal. This is the ancient world. They know what it takes to make an animal skin, right? In fact, skinning the animal is an important part of the sacrificial process. There's been a sacrifice made on their behalf already. So they're not without hope. And I'm going to give you a spoiler. We know who the offspring of the woman is, right? In fact, it's the only person that was born just of a woman. Jesus. Born of Mary. Because Jesus comes to undo death. Jesus' ministry, all that Jesus is accomplishing is not just to show up to be a good teacher, though he's a good teacher. He has come to undo this, to undo this mess that we have made. And the signs of it are all through his ministry. He's healing people. He even brings people back from the dead. He is building a kingdom of reconciliation. He, think about how he treats those who are filled with shame. And he, of course, is bringing us back to God. That is why the cross and the resurrection is not just another moment in Jesus' life. The cross and the resurrection mean everything about Jesus' life. They are where his life is leading from the very beginning because it is at the cross that we see Jesus take our place. We see the full weight of sin revealed. We see hell itself when he is cut off from the Father's love. It is this substitutionary act, right? On our behalf, that is the judgment we deserve. It is death itself fully revealed, but of course in the resurrection, it is the beginning of the healing because when death spits Jesus back out, it is already defeated. Because Jesus has undone the power of it because he has undone the power of sin. Jesus is breaking death. And look, just as death begins as a spiritual reality and becomes a physical reality one day, so too as Jesus works in our lives, it is first a spiritual resurrection and one day a physical resurrection. Death is spiritual and then physical, and so too is the new life that we're promised by the Spirit. That's why God is at work in our lives. To bring him to himself, to heal our shame, to heal our relationships with others. That is what the church is, you know. (laughs) A a place of reconciliation. And finally, it will be to undo death itself. 2 Corinthians 5, I was thinking about this. He says, for the love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. For he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised up. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ Jesus reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God has reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. You see that how Jesus 
live the life that we couldn't live. Died the death we deserved. And therefore, he has raised us up with him. Given us his life. And has begun spiritually, if you're in Christ, has begun spiritually in you already. It is working itself out in your dealing with your shame. It is working itself out and reconciling you with others. And one day, you will know the fullness of it when you are raised from the dead. I know this is a sober, mostly a sober message this morning. I'm sorry, it's judgment. But what do we do with this? Maybe you've been sitting here wondering all along, like, what on earth am I supposed to do with this? Uh, Let me give you one example of somebody who tried to do something with this. Jonathan Edwards, um, you know, famous minister, theologian. He... uh, he wrote, he, would write, he wrote out over the course of his life a series of resolutions, and he would try to go back every week and read through them, and they were things that he was going to think about often. The, the list ends up being pretty long, and I wonder how much he actually was able to do this, accomplish this. But number nine that he came up with was to think often about his own death. Does that strike you as a little morbid? Maybe a little bit. Maybe that's not exactly the right way to frame this. <laughs> I don't know. He's not infallible. But all of these aspects of death are things that we need to think on more seriously. In fact, it is true that the more we are willing, places where people are willing to actually acknowledge our alienation from God, our shame, our blaming of one another, the ultimate disintegration of our physical lives are the places where the gospel takes root. Whether it was the poor in the Roman Empire, whether it is China today, parts of sub-Saharan Africa, all other places that, that is growing in in the modern world, are places where people are willing to admit this. And we don't want to admit this, let's be honest. But they're true. These are true things about who we are. We are cut off from God. We are a problem to ourselves, to our neighbors. And we are going back to the dust. But, if you're going to resolve to think more about your death you better resolve to think more, even more, about the grace of Jesus. Because if you don't want to be crushed by that thought, but if you want to be strengthened by it, then know that Jesus has given his life for you. Not only dying, but also taking his life back up, that death might be undone, that you might be washed of sin, and then you might see him face to face. The poet John Donne, I'll end with this, wrote a, a poem called Hymn to God My God in My Sickness. He had been really sick, thought he was dying. And he wrote these lines, Look, Lord, and find both Adams met in me, 
As the first Adam's sweat surrounds my face, may the last Adam's blood my soul embrace. Let's pray. Father, we know that we come to you only by the blood of Jesus. We know that if we come on our own, we've got nothing to offer. That death is at work in our whole lives. But we praise you that that is no longer true if we're in Jesus. Because Jesus has done, has let sin and death do its worst on our behalf so that he might break its power and restore us to you. Give us confidence to approach you, to be honest about our own condition left to ourselves, but more than that, to find our hope, our life in you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.